Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, Buckhead, East Cobb, the city of DeKalb. When does creating a new city actually make sense? Well, Peter Bluestone, a researcher with the Center for State and Local Finance at Georgia State University, joins us to discuss what goes into a cityhood feasibility study. Plus, David Chastain, the chair of the Cobb County Board of Education, stops by to to discuss how schools in a district are weathering the Omicron wave of the pandemic. And we check in with our WABE politics reporters, Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally, and join us as they tell us what happened down at the state capitol. All those conversations coming up. But first, this, the Gwinnett County School Board has new leadership. Outgoing board chair Everton Blair, who is running for state school superintendent, nominated one of his fellow Democratic members to replace him. It's my honor to make the nomination for Dr. Therese Johnson to be the next board chair of the Gwinnett County Board of Education. Johnson won the election 3-2. She's the first African-American woman elected to the board. Blair then nominated Republican member Steve Nutt. Knudsen for vice chair. Now, Knudsen also won 3-1 with one member abstaining. Some state lawmakers have said they support legislation that eliminates partisan school board elections. In other news, short-term rental site Airbnb says its first technology hub in the southeast will be where Atlanta's Midtown neighborhood. As Emil Moffitt reports, the move is part of the company's ongoing effort to build a more diverse workforce. Airbnb first announced the hub last year and began hiring employees based in Atlanta. Over the next three years, the company wants to grow the percentage of underrepresented minorities in its U.S. workforce from 13 percent to 20 percent. Airbnb's Nia Brown says Atlanta will be an important part of that. Now, this tech hub is envisioned to be a place where we can hire non-technical and technical skilled workers from across the Atlanta area. The hub will be located inside the Interlock at 14th and Howell Mill, just west of Georgia Tech. That's a mixed-use development of office space, high-end apartments, a hotel, and a planned grocery store. An opening date for the office, Airbnb says, still depends on the pandemic. Emil Moffat, WABE News. And it's going to be cold this weekend. Now, the city of Atlanta is opening two emergency warming centers ahead of the below freezing temperatures that is expected this weekend. Now, warming centers, one will be located at the old Adamsville Recreation Center west of the perimeter and the other at Central Park Rec Rec Center near Midtown. So if you know someone who might need to take hold of those facilities, facilities, please let them know. The centers are open until 12 p.m. tomorrow, starting starting tomorrow. And finally, longtime Atlanta journalist and political commentator Dick Williams has died. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution reports Williams passed away of congestive heart failure Thursday night. Along with his signature bow ties, Williams reported for then the Atlanta Journal and later ran a small newspaper of his own, the Dunwoody Crier. He talked politics on radio and on television's The Georgia Gang. Now, when that show started in the 1980s, well, Williams would go on to be part of more than 1,700 episodes. Dick Williams... Journalist, fine journalist. He was 77 years old. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF. 
greateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And you're listening to Closer Look here on 90.1 WABE, Amplifying Atlanta and Beyond. That's what we do. I'm Rose Scott. This region, that includes Metro Atlanta, is having a cityhood moment from Buckhead. You've heard a lot about that. And for some of you, you said you've heard too much about it, but that's okay. East Cobb to the city of DeKalb, communities throughout the region are pushing for the creation of, well, a new city. And we've heard from many proponents and opponents right here on the show. But there is an actual legal process that must be followed on the path to creating a new city, and it's way before it becomes a ballot measure. And that involves getting researchers to figure out whether incorporation even makes sense. So pay attention. It's a feasibility study. What is it? How is it conducted? And who's qualified to even create one? That's why we asked the folks at the Center for State and Local Finance at Georgia State University because they're one of the institutions crafting these feasibility studies. And Peter Bluestone is a senior researcher there, and he joins me because he's way smarter than I am about this stuff. Welcome, Peter. Hi, thanks for having me. Before we have you break down what goes into this feasibility study, through your lens, is there an assessment that you all use to to determine if it's even worth developing one for a specific community? For example... I came to you and I said, Peter, I want to have the city of Cheshire Bridge. Well, (laughs) I would tell you, work on that bridge. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No. So the the process um, uh, is is one in which we are contacted usually uh, first by a representative who uh, represents the area that is interested in being incorporated. Uh, and a committee uh, of citizens who are interested in in forming a new city, um, and we, you know, will we we take all people that are, are committees that are interested in going through the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a fee associated with a study, um, and so that's an, an initial hurdle for the group. Um, but if 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 a group is serious about forming a city, we will uh, perform the study for them. What's the fee? Uh, does it does it vary? It, it does vary depending on the, the amount of services uh, that the city is providing uh, and um, so, some other potential uh, things that would make a city, uh, uh, the study a little more complicated. Um, so, uh, but, but, but the, the fees are, are you know, uh, in line with what you'd expect for a, a very detailed study, you know, done by a highly qualified and skilled people. Is there, is there, a checklist, an assessment that you all will go through with this, with a region or a, a committee or a community, whatever, even if they have the fee, do you all determine, is this even worth it? I mean, I, I made a joke about the city of Cheshire Bridge, but maybe I'll give somebody an idea. I don't know. Um, so we, we will discuss with the group again, uh, you know, what, what we will need from them. Um, and they might go back uh, amongst themselves and, and, and internally decide, um, g- given uh, what's required, given uh, that, um, again, we, we, some of them will need to raise funds and they may take some time to do that, um, that, that they, they'll uh, think about it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but but usually if, if a group approaches us, they're pretty serious about uh, the study and, and, and most of them move forward. And then what's the next phase for you all? So the next phase is, is, is often uh, one of the more difficult phases for the group because that's where they are the most involved. Mm-hmm. The first thing we need, and this is very technical, uh, is, is what's called a GIS, a graphical information system, a shape file. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and why that's really important is because the city is being created out of uh, priorly, uh, currently unincorporated count, an unincorporated county area. Mm-hmm. And so we need to be able to uh, figure out all the businesses, all the residences and the property and its value that are going to be within this new city. Uh, and, and so that all has to be done using these um, geotags. Uh, and so we can pull census data 
and pull county data. So they provide that or you all have to work with them in gathering that? We, we, we will work with them in figuring out how they can get it. Often they will work with the county to get a, a shape file, but we do not put that together for them. That is something that they have to do for themselves. And I imagine, does that take a while? It can. Um, counties are, are cooperative and they all have uh, GIS departments. Uh, and so uh, initially it, it is often the case where somebody will send me a PDF of the map and say, oh, here it is. And I have to explain to them no, that that's, that's not, it. not really going to work. <laughs> but but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Peter, let me ask you this because, and again, I'm not asking you to speak for them, but in the case of the Buckhead folks, they're already inside a city. That's not, they're not unincorporated. So are you, would you, would then there be something different that you would need? Um, we did not work on that study. And so, uh, but, but the, 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 um, the information will be the same because mm -hmm. again, it's going to be a subsection of, okay. a, of an area and it's not its own entity yet. So there's no statistics about it. It doesn't currently exist, you know, like a county exists mm -hmm. or a city exists. Those are geographic entities, and uh, there are census blocks that generally correspond with those uh, that can be used, again, for this demographic information. Uh, we can look at property tax records and things like that. So when you create a new geographical subdivision, you're going to need this GIS map. And then are you also, with that information, do you also need to look at in terms of if the population that we're talking about for said region, you mentioned census, but the population, does that, does it differ? Like if it's a 50,000 or 18,000, does that change how you all will then proceed with collecting more information based on the population? So yeah, that's, that's kind of the next step is what we look at is demographic information because what the studies are interested in doing is figuring out uh, an estimate of expenses for this new city. And, and the way we do that is to look at existing cities that, are, that would look similar uh, in terms of population, in terms of geographical size, uh, in terms of characteristics of residents, such as median income and things like that. Um, and so all, all those, those various demographic factors are taken into account to pick what we call a group of comparison cities. Mm -hmm. And these cities, like for instance, if a city is interested in, in if a new city is interested in, in um, providing police and fire services, we're gonna be picking cities that also provide police and fire services that are similar. Um, if the city's interested in um, code enforcement or in planning and zoning, which are popular uh, services for, for new cities, uh, we'll make sure and, and that have the, the cities that have those. Um, and so what we're looking at is Trump is is to to compare how existing cities uh, how much it costs for them to provide these services and it's usually done on a per capita basis mm -hmm. that's sort of the equalizing uh, way, way the way we can compare across cities because they're not all going to be the same um, for some services it may make sense to look more at, at other terms such as road miles if they're pro providing public works um, or a, a acreage of parkland. Um, but but the idea is to try to create comparisons that are that are equivalent across across cities. I'm curious when it comes to estimating or projecting in terms of revenues and 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 as revenues and then also expenditures, how do you all how is that crafted? Is that also in in, in census and demographic information? So the the expenditures are based on this list of services that the city is interested in providing. And they're required to provide at least three from a, a, a list that is provided by statute. Mm -hmm. um, and so those services are, 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 again, estimated. The cost of providing those services are estimated based on the comparison cities. Uh, again, such as if a city is, is interested in providing police and fire, we'll have a per capita estimate of the current comparison cities, the average of those cities. We usually use anywhere from three to five. Uh, and then we will... Uh, use that per capita estimate to estimate um, for the new city. Uh, and, and there may be some adjustments uh, mm -hmm. depending on some other factors, but that's generally how it's done. Um, expenditures, excuse me, revenue, revenue is a little bit different because revenue is, is, is codified. It, it, there's only certain revenues that are available to a city. Um, and the thing that we are trying to do is, is provide a snapshot in time. Um, 
because cities, once they are formed, they have control of these revenues. Uh, they can, for instance, one of the big revenues for, for counties and cities is property tax. And they can change the millage rate um, to raise more money, uh, or they could uh, lower the millage rate. But what we're interested in is, is, is looking at a snapshot in time uh, for a given year, you know, the most recent year that we have data for, if that city existed in that prior time, how much revenue would be available to them mm -hmm. uh, given the um, current rates, current millage rates, current sales tax rates. Uh, and it gets a bit complicated because each county collects different local option sales taxes. Mm -hmm. and some local option sales taxes are available for cities for operating revenue while others are not. Uh, and that will vary by county. The voice you hear is Peter Bluestone. He's a senior researcher with the Center for State and Local Finance at Georgia State University. And we're talking about how they, someone like them, would conduct a feasibility study. We had a lot of folks actually want to know more about this. Uh, I have a question from a listener who wants to know, do studies look at how areas surrounding the new city could be impacted, thinking about how much the tax revenue uh, would lose if Buckhead happened? So that's a good question. Um, well, our and, listeners are smart, I tell you. <laughs> um, and so when we are doing a feasibility study, we only look at the uh, impact uh, on the for the new city, right? Uh, we do not take into account how that would impact uh, the remaining uh, county services or the cost to the county for providing those services. Uh, in some instances, we have been uh, contracted with for, with counties to provide that information. Mm -hmm. um, but again, when we're looking at cityhood feasibility studies, that's not part of our, our calculation. And Peter, do you all actually give a recommendation in the end, you know, some type of footnote or that says, look, our recommendation is that you don't do it or you, you do it or you just say, no, this is what we are contracted to do and here's your information. I mean, do you all add that in there? Our role is really to provide just the information. And so in the end, um, we it's a very simple uh, calculation, right? We we estimate the revenues uh, based on these very you know detailed uh, methods. We estimate the expenditures based on these very detailed methods. Uh, and then it's just a subtraction. Are, are the revenues greater than the expenditures? Um, that said, a, a feasibility study is not a budget. And we really... Uh, the goal of a feasibility study is, is education, right? Educating the committee um, who's interested in forming the new city, educating citizens in the area that will be impacted by uh, such a city, uh, and, and providing information to policymakers. Um, so uh, the feasibility study isn't the, the end of the conversation. If, mm -hmm. if, if an uh, area, quote, is not feasible, uh, that doesn't mean that it could not become a city. Uh, it, it's just a way for people to have something uh, that is uh, that both sides can can talk about that's it's a common metric. Have you all ever encountered? And you don't have to mention the community, but have you ever encountered someone coming back to you all saying, "Well, this isn't right," or sort of questioning what you came up with, and how do you handle that? Um. So while we're doing the studies, there is a good bit of back and forth um, because. Um, you know, the committee will have ideas about what they'd like to provide in terms of services, uh, and they'll have ideas of what they think they're entitled to in revenue. And so sometimes we have to, you know, explain, yes, that revenue is available, but that revenue is not available for the, the, the items and the services you're interested in providing. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it's only constitutionally or legally able to be used for this. Uh, and so sometimes cities will have a larger list of initial services. Um, and then when we come back and say, you know, here's what you're looking at for expenditures versus your revenues, and they'll change that list. Um, because again, they, they, they're they interested in being feasible. Uh, they don't want, most of them don't want to come out to their constituents and say, here's a list of services, and, and we're likely also going to need to raise your taxes. No, but they don't want to say that. <laughs> that. That they're interested in. Let me ask you this before I let you go, Peter, what do you think people, some communities get wrong about the purpose of the feasibility study? Um, I think one of the things that folks sometimes, and again, we, we do try to do a lot of educating while we're, we're working with these committees, is again that this idea that, that the, the cityhood study is not a budget. We really try to make these studies, as, it's a complex, there are complex issues, 
but we want to be able to have be able to have lay people read these studies and understand the methods. We don't want to get into the idea of financing with bonds, with different types of rates and interest rates, and, and when you pay this back and sunset and all that kind of stuff, uh, and, and, which makes it overly complicated. There's lots of ways that cities, once they become cities, um, can can use methods to stretch their budgets um, and, and, and provide uh, you know uh, additional services uh, that may not need to be funded all at once, which is typically how we, we structure these studies. We really do them on, on a one-year basis. Mm. That's not the way budgets work, but, but that's, again, important to try to provide a common ground for the committee, citizens, and policymakers to discuss the issues. And I'm just curious, what do you make of this current sort of cityhood moment that we're in, just through your lens? Well, you know, it, it, it's actually been kind of a long moment. Um, you know, going back to, you know, one of the, the, the initial studies, you know, in cities, Sandy Springs, mm-hmm. way back in 2005, right? Um, and, and so since then, there's been a lot of new cities that's that have formed. And, you know, for various reasons, you know, you know, as an economist, you know, in state and local public finance, you, we understand, you know, that people like to have a level of government that's close to them, right, that they can interact with and is responsive to their needs. Um, you know, going way back, you know, before Sandy Springs, right, you had, particularly in Fulton County, you had a big part of the county that was, you know, north of the city of Atlanta that was unincorporated, and then mm-hmm. you had that part of the south that was unincorporated. And neither one was happy with the services they were <laughs> right. getting from Fulton County, right? Yeah. So I think, you know, we're seeing, you know, over time that places realize that, you know, we can, if we're closer to our level of government, get the services and, and accountability that, that, that we desire. In other words, the city of Cheshire Bridge, where Rose Scott would be the mayor, would not work, is what you're saying. <laughs> you get that bridge fixed. <laughs> that's my that's that's gonna be my one campaign platform. Fix the bridge. Peter Bluestone <laughs> Peter Bluestone is a senior researcher with the Center for State and Local Finance at Georgia State University. And we've been discussing how feasibility studies for potential cities is all developed. Fascinating conversation, good information. Thank you so much, Peter. Take care. Thank you. And you're listening to Closer Look here on 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Now, some state agencies are having a hard time retaining employees. That was one of the issues that emerged during budget hearings this week down at the Capitol. Now, during these budget hearings, it's a chance for the heads of state agencies to go before lawmakers and kind of let them know how they're spending the dollars they've allocated and actually where they need more money. Here's Gary Black, head of the Georgia Department of Agriculture. He said, look, we need more folks. I get HR reports every Monday. That's one of the first things we do. And uh, we're hovering anywhere from 25 to 40 every week, which if we talked about the revolving door, we'd be up north of a third of our workforce. That's that's a big challenge. Mm. And from meat inspectors to correction officers, it looks like state employees are also taking part in the great resignation what ideas do lawmakers have to fix these issues? What do we hear? Well, joining me to discuss all of this is our WAB politics reporters, Raul Bally and Sam Greenglass, who you heard on Morning Edition this morning. They spent the week watching the budget hearings and keep an eye on all the other news at the state capitol. Sam, Raul, good to have you as well. It's always on. All right. So week two, how was it? In one word, Sam? Money. <laughs> okay, Raul? Broke. No, I'm <laughs> I don't know. Too much money. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about what we heard from the agency heads about their inability to keep employees. Uh, what did you hear? We'll start with you, Sam. What did you hear about which agencies were hit the hardest? I mean, Rose, you asked for one word. You could also say, you know, missing people to work in these jobs. I know that's yeah. not one word, but that was a singular theme that it was so consistent. It was striking. Mm-hmm. Everyone raised this question. And, you know, you mentioned food inspectors, correction officers, but also mental health providers. Um, I mean, even in the Department of Economic Development, they were talking about how they can't keep employees. Mm. Uh, Kathleen Toomey, she leads the Department of Public Health. She said that often when she gets someone really good and trained up, they just get snapped up by the CDC really fast. Uh, She said one epidemiologist actually just got hired 
by a local school district even. And people have options right now because like the coffee shop and the Sam's Club, everyone is trying to hire. And pay is probably one of the biggest issues that we heard from these department heads. Um, wow. Take juvenile justice, correction officers, the starting salary is about $30,000. And last year they had a 90% turnover rate. Wow. And, and you know, an agency that, that I, and, and when you wanna talk about affecting people in everyday life, the GBI crime lab and the challenges they have there, you know, if someone's family member has a questionable death, how long it takes for, you know, that that autopsy, if it's done at the GBI crime lab to come back, you know, a lot of the toxicology reports, it's just taking a long time. Mm -hmm. And the GBI director talked about just, it's a challenge to hang on to people. Now their turnover wasn't as high. Theirs was in the seven to 10% range, but they just talk about how hard it is to, to find people and to keep people. In his budget proposal, Governor Brian Kemp, he's, he's asking for more money for state employees. He's proposed a, a $5,000 raise for all state employees, a $2,000 raise for K-12 through teachers, and I think another $1,000 bonus for part-time school employees. But did you get a sense that lawmakers really could feel where these department heads were talking, that they really could absorb the issues and challenges? Did they... And for folks who don't know what happens in these budget hearings, do the lawmakers, they just, they thank them? Do they try to give them some ideas or give them a sense of, yes, we feel you and we want to approve this? Raul, take us through that. There was a lot of, do you think it's enough? Is it enough? Mm -hmm. There there was definitely kind of that vibe. Um, you know, maybe for lower paid positions, it might help. But again, if you're thinking about what, what Sam talked about right now, correction, juvenile correction officers start at 31,000. Will 36000 make a difference? Now, I do want to mention, along with the $5,000 increase in pay, there was a couple of other things that Governor Kemp is proposing for state employees, and, and one of those was increasing the 401k match from 3% to 9%. And also, this was also kind of an interesting line that I saw, allowing employees to take up to five days of their leave and turn it into salary, turn it into pay. So a couple of other kind of small things that that you've noticed that they're they're trying to, to do to either hang on to employees or attract employees. But in the end, the five thousand dollar raise is probably the biggest thing they're doing. Yeah. Sam, I understand we heard some interesting stuff, so to speak, about the money the state spends on mental health services. What do we learn and what might this mean for lawmakers in terms of what they can do this session regarding mental health services? Yeah, so I'll let Raul talk a little bit more about the actual plans that lawmakers are formulating right now to address some of these mental health issues. But just some big picture context, uh, Judy Fitzgerald, she's the commissioner of the Department of Behavioral Health. She testified this week. And you could just tell that lawmakers watching this presentation were hooked. They were kind of struck by some of these numbers that she was rolling out on her PowerPoint slides. Um, for example, Georgia experienced big jumps in rural suicides, big jumps in overdose deaths, and this is specifically during the pandemic. I mean, one number, 24% increase in calls and texts to Georgia's crisis line last year. And at the same time that there's all this extra increased need, there's 185 beds for inpatient mental health care that aren't available. And it's not because they're full, it's because there aren't health care workers to staff them. So it's getting to some of these questions that we've been talking about that like what's falling through the cracks when you don't have employees staffed up in some of these agencies. You know, it's meat inspectors, but it's also mental health care workers. Mm. Raul, what do you want to add about this plan? At the very beginning of, of, of the year, we heard the speaker lay down a very key marker that mental health was going to be a big priority. Within the next week, I expect a significant mental health package to be filed at the legislature. And what we're talking about is dealing with the shortage of workers and developing more workers, how uh, mental health uh, workers. Also, how much you pay them is going to be something that they're looking at. Dealing with the insurance and what's called insurance parity and making sure that health care insurance is very similar to, to, to what is provided for mental health care insurance. And then you heard Sam mention the issue around crisis, mm -hmm. making the system more robust to help Georgians and people who are in crisis. We've got the beds 
for people once they're institutionalized or in their kind of long-term care or home care. Mm-hmm. What about the people who are going beyond just the police department when police are dealing with mental health issues or people just going to the hospital? That's another thing that 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 I'm hearing is going to be worked on in a in a pretty significant and what I've been told a bipartisan package. The voice you hear is Raul Bally. I'm also joined by Sam Greenglass. They are WABE's politics reporters, and we're re- we're recapping what happened this week at the state legislature. And Raul, I want to go back to this because lawmakers also heard from Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, and he says the state's going to spend money on some kind of new voter registration system. We just got a new one. What, what's, is it an overhaul? What's happening here? So a couple of things. This was actually a press conference that Raffensperger did kind of, he, he did this separate from the budget hearings. He actually did it at the same time as the budget hearings. And, and this is the... What this is addressing is the system that has the database of when you and I go register to vote. The issue that that he's trying to address was the issue that happened during early voting. When you and I go to a voting location and the systems are struggling to pull up the data that you and I use to go vote. What This is not a challenge that's happening on election day. Mm-hmm. This is the challenge that's happening during early voting because – for example, in DeKalb County, you've got multiple locations where you can early vote. So the database has to access so many different places to get to find your voting information. On voting day, on election day, your information is only at the one polling location that you're at. So this is to try to deal with those long lines, especially mm-hmm. you saw in October 2020 during early voting in person. Now, he already has the funding in for that, correct? Or is he trying to get more? I want to be clear. No, he is not asking for more funding. He's going to use federal election commission dollars that he already has, along with some of the leftover money from the bonds for buying uh, buying the new voting systems. There was a $150 million bond package. He's got about $10 million left in that. So he's not asking for more mm-hmm. money. He's just rolling this out. Well, let's take our listeners through what happens next in this process. Uh, What is the next step here? So state lawmakers are hearing from agency departments. They've heard from the governor. Now what's next? There'll be uh, some additional hearings kind of on a more granular level. These are going to be subcommittees, education subcommittee and transportation subcommittee are meeting this week. And then the work is just going to keep working behind the scenes to kind of produce one big budget that's going to be presented in the House here in the next couple of weeks. They're going to first work on the budget, what's called the amended budget. That's the state budget that's in effect now that runs to June 30th. That's the budget that's being worked on now. And then once that's completed in the House, completed in the Senate, Senate the governor, then they'll start working on the big 23 budget that starts July 1st. Mm As we begin to wrap up, and I'll stay with you, Raul, what are you going to keep uh, keeping an eye on for next week? What do we need to know? Definitely going to keep an eye. I expect a lot of bills to be dropped. Some of the bills that have been people have been telling us about, whether it's uh, parental education rights, a bill of rights. I'm, I'm watching for that bill, uh, watching for the mental health bill that I that I just mentioned. Um, and then trying to keep an eye on, for example, constitutional carry. Mm-hmm. I still have not heard which bill the governor is going to get behind or if his floor leaders are going to file their own bill. Same with, for example, critical race theory. Is he going to jump on an existing bill like House Bill 888? Or again, is this floor leader is going to file their own bill? A lot of that that I'm going to be keeping an eye on this week. All right. Sam, what about you? Yeah, as Raul said, there's just so many bills that we've heard a lot about that have gotten a lot of attention on the campaign trail, and I'm eager to see actual text so we can answer some of these questions that we just really don't know right now. Well, I have a listener that says, how do you all, with two people, Rose Scott, how do you all keep up with all these bills? Hey, I, my guys are great. Coffee, coffee, coffee. <laughs> Raul Bally, Sam Greenglass, they cover politics for WABE. We've been talking about this last week of action at the state capitol. Thank you so much. As always, I appreciate it. Our listeners appreciate it because they send me emails and they say they learn a lot more from you all than they do from, well, I won't say that other place, but that's what they said. Thanks, Rose. No comment. Thank you both. I'm just passing on the message.
And Close Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Both Cobb and Douglas County are experiencing a surge in COVID-19 cases. This is fueled in large part by the Omicron variant. And it's actually a wave that's washing over the entire state. And it's not just here in Georgia, the entire nation, as a matter of fact. And just this week, Cobb Commission Chairwoman Lisa Cupid extended the county's pandemic state of emergency declaration to mid-February. And we all know this ongoing pandemic has forced so many school districts across Georgia throughout the nation to make some tough choices about how to keep students safe while also minimizing disruptions to their education. It's a balance. The state's second largest school district has been trying to strike, often drawing criticism from all parts everywhere. I think David Chastain knows that. He's the chair of the Cobb County Board of Education. He joins us now to talk about how the district is dealing with all of this. David Excuse me, Chairperson Chastain, thank you so much for taking time. I appreciate it. Well, good afternoon, Noon Rose. And criticism? What criticism? <laughs> Listen, you know, if I think if anyone had told us two years ago, we'd still be talking about this. But let me just ask you to, to for our listeners who, and people have lots of questions, but how have you all, been, what's been the challenge for you all as a school board to try to balance all of this? Is it, well, if, is it? Well, I'll let you tell me. Well, first, can I can I add some perspective? Because a lot of people, uh, even people who have their kids in schools, let's say that they live in their community. They might have one high school, a middle high school and a two or three elementary school. What I like to remind people is in the case of the Cobb County School District, again, the last time I ran the numbers, if you take our student population, students, kindergarten through 12th grade, rank them among the populations of all the municipalities in Georgia. Our student population creates the roughly eighth largest city. If you add in 18,000 employees, roughly, we are now the seventh largest city. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so with 16 high schools and everything else, that is quite the challenge. And uh, so it, it, it makes that, yes, there, there's a lot of people, um, who have their own ideas and so it falls down on the board and the superintendent and his staff to work out uh well primarily it's the superintendent to work out what is the best operational response to the challenges that are coming from the pandemic cobb county school superintendent as you mentioned chris ragsdale recently announced though that the district is ending COVID contact tracing now through your lens and do you think that's a good idea what's your response to this decision Okay, and he reiterated uh, last night, and I can't quote chapter and verse because we had our board meeting last evening, Mm -hmm. but it's not that we're so much, I don't think we're ignoring it, but what's happened is it's created a logistical nightmare with the guidelines that had been used with contact tracing. There still is, um, uh, in fact, we just put the new new rules are up on our website for people to look at the uh, protocols. But the idea is to try and minimize, not not totally ignore, but to try and minimize the impact of some of this contact tracing uh, when it affects, you know, students who are, you know, they're, they're not showing any symptoms or whatever. And at one time it was stay home for five days. I think we're down to three days. But a lot was going on where it was just a disruption. But backing around, again, talking about that large population, um, in fact, it was interesting hearing your your previous uh, your reporters talking earlier. It is much more. This pandemic has done much more than just talk about you know uh, infections. Uh, we are talking. You know, we are addressing. We're trying to meet the challenge of mental health, uh, reading, um, uh, abusive uh, homes. Because in the case of the Cobb County School District, you know, we have social workers assigned to every school. We have a, a, a large team of psychologists. We have all these services that we provide to students that need them, whether it has to do with mental health, uh, uh, food inadequacy, that the, sort of the, thing. The wraparound services, I think, is what we call it. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. And so what happens if the kids are not in the classroom, are not in the school, they are not in a I won't say they absolutely don't get the services, but they don't get the quality of the services they need. And so that is that is where the district, where the superintendent has been trying to follow the guidelines, which, by the way, let's remember that it seems like the guidelines changed almost on a weekly basis. 
And there were times over the past year where they could put one set of guidelines on the website, and two days later, that is have true. New guidelines. That is true. So let me ask you, this, uh, uh, Chairman, does it? You all need help. Do you need some assistance? Then, because someone listening is saying, "Well, if you need help in terms of COVID contact tracing, is there? Can you go to the state? Is there another the Department of the County Health Department? Can they help y'all in this?" Because then someone well, listening says maybe it shouldn't just totally be left up to you all if you don't have the personnel to do it. Well, part of well, it's not so much the personnel. It is just the the the. In fact, that's where the the guidelines on contact tracing have changed, and I can't quote them right now. But the idea is that uh, a student might be in a class where someone had had come in and said I tested positive, and then the teacher has to figure out do we. All right, do, do we, you know, looks at the seating chart and has to contact the, the parents to let them know. Mm-hmm. And then in some cases, you could have a child that was positive. That, that, and again, I'm being very hypothetical, but, but you could have a child that was on positive on Thursday. The teacher found out on Friday. Mm-hmm. And then the communication has to go out to the associated parents to let them know. Whose job is it to do are, that, Chairman? Whose, well, job, whose job is it to do that? Because you say it's not personnel, well, but maybe if there's another person to take well, that load teacher, off the educator. But it's the teacher in the room who keeps the sitting charts. And then mm-hmm. it's the, well, the general part of the process would be the, either that person, uh, I don't know if it's the teacher or someone else has to help make sure they send out the appropriate communication to the parents. Um, and then so, you know, you've got parents, you have a lot of two-income households out there. And so what I was talking about that Thursday Thursday's child. So you get to Monday and we've already had three days go by and then two more. And then we've got the five days, but a lot of, a lot, there's a lot of learning loss. So, so that's where the contact tracing, the, the, the risk is probably minimal when it comes to students. So, you know, it's, um, you know, like, Oh, and what I was going to say is, so then it's we're making sure that that our their adult employees and all feel safe and can make the choices to whether they want to you know be in the classroom or not and we have a lot of troopers we had a lot a lot of our teachers um you know if they you know they've done whatever they felt they needed to do to be ready if 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 they get sick and so then it's making sure you've got substitute teachers on the back bench that can help cover mm-hmm. for them and that has been a challenge sure go out and try and recruit substitute teachers and say we want you to venture into the unknown <laughs> listen worker short listen you know, and it's not funny I no no me. i i, I, I know what you're saying good. but worker shortage yeah. in in health in health care systems first responders school districts we know of, we you you're not alone you're right and, and i right. want to ask you though because it is important though for the Cobb County School District family to be notified in terms of up-to-date COVID numbers. Mm-hmm. You all are behind, and you haven't posted COVID numbers since before the winter break. What, what well, that the, be? Superintendent, the superintendent gave a, a response to that yesterday, and part of it is what, what, what numbers are important. And what they, I believe this is coming from the CDC guidance, and if I'm wrong, forgive me, but, but uh, I was sitting listening to the superintendent last night, but I was not taking notes, okay? Um, but one of the things that uh, has been pointed out is really what's more important for looking at the peaks and what's going on is looking at the uh, the hospitalizations. Uh, now, this is extreme, but there's a chance. And I have two grandsons in the cop schools mm-hmm. um, where you could be you could test positive for COVID at the beginning of a month and be fine. And then you might not. And this is the other thing. We've also heard that, you know, a positive test is not a guarantee and the t- negative test is not a guarantee. But you could have a child or an adult who tests positive in the same month and it becomes two cases, whereas it's really just one person who tested positive. So what they're looking at now is what's going on in the overall community by looking at hospitalizations. And the superintendent is providing data through the Department of Public, the Cobb, I believe it's the Cobb Douglas Department of Health. But um, and I believe that I believe that's been issued on our website, but I, I I'm afraid I can't quote chapter and verse. But you think through your lens, you feel the hospitalizations that that metric is that's the one that you want the district. That, well, for- that tells us that tells us what's going on in Cobb County, and helps us to have a guide. But uh, we've had you know if, if if there's information that gets out there, of course the local school is going to try to respond, and that's it. It's really at the local school level. And, it, and may I just add, I. I I'm sure a lot of us have been reading our history about, you know, pandemics of the past. And uh, I was a very small child in the late 50s. 
when um, apparently I forget which flu it was, forgive me, but uh, I was reading about what happened then and it was a pandemic. It was a flu pandemic. But what they talk about is the fact that you would have school systems where you didn't shut down the whole school system. But if 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 attendance, if uh, if uh, absenteeism got too high in a school, they would just shut down a school for a week or so. Tell everybody, you know, you know, let's we'll regroup in two weeks and get back to work. This th what we went through with the idea of closing down or sending everybody home and then having them, you know, do the digital learning one time and then having the choices and that sort of thing. You know, the parents made the choices. Do I want my child in class or not? Uh, we've got a lot of a lot of making up to do. So based on everything that you've just said, you talked about the challenges and you mm -hmm. talked about the misinformation. And if there is one way to mitigate the spread, we know that it is to mask. Do you agree with that? That's my first question. Well, okay. See, it's not whether or not I agree. Well, because I think it's important it's, for the next question. I want to be fair with you. That's why okay. I asked that. So, because well, cop students are not required to wear a mask in schools, correct? No, no, they are encouraged. They are encouraged to wear a mask. But well, that's it's different their from not. Choice. <laughs> I know a chairman come it's, on now. But it's their personal choice. No, that's that's part of what we're dealing with because the mask in and of itself is a psychological uh, influencer. Let's say. The the inability and, and the people have written about this. I'm no expert when it comes to the nonverbal and that sort of thing. But one of the things that we've been missing, even when the kids are in class wearing masks, is they're not getting the, the verbal the, the cues and that sort of thing. Uh, a, a teacher can say certain things to a student, but if they can't see that, that they hear the words, but if they can't see the teacher smiling, they don't get the full context of how what how it's being said. Chairman Chester, so, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this because. Sure. And I, and I don't know if you've ever been an educator and we, this is 2022 and I know that educators mm -hmm. are doing the best that they can. If you don't have educators because there is a, 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 a lot of educators that may have the virus, or what have you, don't you think it's important? Do you think it's important to make sure then that the health and safety is first before we even get to whether or not the teacher is smiling? And I ask that because Wearing mask and and you you sound you appear to be a guy that relies on credible information, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. But we know that masks help mitigate the spread of this virus, and you encourage students. Now you know you tell a kindergartner, "Hey, you want to wear that mask or not?" Now you know kindergartners, even well, some even high schoolers. Why not at least have that policy so you can mitigate the spread? Because you just well, told me about all the challenges this school district has. But there's there's evidence to the contrary. And and that's what's happened is that we have so much information out there. We had one group of parents that wanted to mandate masks. We have another group of parents that wanted to make sure that that we didn't have masks. And I think both sides have threatened lawsuits. One side withdrew. But the idea is that that the you know the the the, the motto of the uh, Cobb County School District is one team one goal student success. Part of the team is the parents, and um, they they can make those choices. But uh, a child you know we've had children that you know they're wearing masks. Other children aren't. At first we were concerned. I'd heard concerns from parents mm -hmm. about whether whether kids would pick on the kids you know one or the other from what i understand that this has become accepted now in society that you're going to go into a place and i've and i unfortunately because of the pandemic i have not been invited to schools like i used to in the past uh but i have gone i've had a couple of situations where i was invited in one of my middle high schools i went in many of the staff were wearing masks many weren't when it came into the to the students a lot of students are wearing masks and then i went into a special needs class mm -hmm. And that is one of the areas where it has been toughest. And so when you mandate masks for everybody, you are painting a very broad brush, but it doesn't mean that you're, 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 you, there, there's, there's um, def learning deficiencies and other things that, that happen with, with certain students. I mean, we've had as asthmatics talk on both sides, whether they want their child wearing a mask or not. And I'm, this is anecdotal. This is just stuff I've heard. I, I hear but you. that's why, but, but that's but, why, you know, the superintendent and the staff have done everything they can to make it possible for the parents to make what they feel is the best choice for their student so that they can come into the classroom and get the quality of education that they want their child to have. This, this has definitely 
been some contention on your on your school board, and we're I hate it because we're running out of time. We'd love to have you yeah. back, but you know, listen, you you are, you chair this school board. Your leadership is important. What do you want folks to know? I mean, do you, will you admit that that perhaps there is another way that you all should come together and work work through all of this? Well, we are working through it. One of the things I like to remind people is school boards by their nature under the statutes we're the only elected officials in georgia that are required to take continuing education um the word micro now i cannot cite you this this section i need to look this up and keep it in my pocket the only as i've been told the only uh w- place where the word micromanagement is used in the georgia code is when it comes to regulating school boards we are not to micromanage our superintendents that's why it's so important we do a very good job of hiring the right ceo especially when it's a large you know, system like Cobb. But, you know, we, we, we are defined. The Georgia School Board Association has continuous training. And uh, so our role as a board is a little bit different from commissioners or the legislature. Sure. I've covered uh, school and so, boards and I've been in a yes, courtroom where I've been in a courtroom where one faction was suing the other. And that was quite <laughs> interesting. I, I'm going to bring you back, uh, Chairman Chastain. I appreciate you taking the time. Unfortunately, we are we are up against the clock here. David Chastain, the chair of the Cobb County Board of Education, come on back, please. I really want to continue this conversation. Thank you, Rose, and it's been a pleasure. All right. That is it for this edition of Closer Look. Our senior producer is Sam Whitehead. Our other producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Janine Etter. Kevin Rinker rides a bike, but he's also our engineer. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.